You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Hello, I'm Father Joe Katursky from Fordham University in the Bronx, and I'm very happy to be with you for these lectures on Veritatis Splendor, the Great Encyclical by Pope John Paul II, now St. John Paul the Great, his great encyclical on fundamental moral theology. It appeared in 1993, and I believe that it is one of the great parts of his legacy. It is a, a document that I think will be remembered for hundreds of years. Perhaps there are others in that class, things like the wonderful document that he did, um, Salvifici Dolores, which is on the Christian meaning of human suffering, or his wonderful encyclical, Evangelium Vitae, which is on the life issues. This one is on fundamental moral theology, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to study it with you. Let me begin by talking simply about that term, fundamental moral theology. It is a term that within theology refers to some of the great and basic questions about how we do our theory of morality, how we understand what it is that the requirements of the moral life are, and how it is that we teach them, how it is that we justify and explain them. There are other parts of moral theology, its various applications. One might think, for instance, of that great body of teaching that is Catholic social teaching, and that's a particular application of morality to the social questions, the organizations of the economy, the organizations of government, the organizations of family and social life. Likewise, there are parts of moral theology that are given to marriage and to the nature of um, sexuality and Christian understandings of appropriate kinds of human relationship. There are many parts of moral theology. But this particular encyclical doesn't delve into any one of those areas except for an example. Instead, it concerns the basics of moral theology, some of the really fundamental questions about human nature and their implications for our moral doctrine, as well as the project of coming to understand how to defend, how to justify those particular stances. So in a way, fundamental moral theology is like philosophical ethics in that great theories of philosophical ethics always have a strong theoretical foundation before they begin their applications to particular questions. One might think, for instance, of Aristotle, who has a theory of morality that's based on the nature of virtue and human excellence. Or one could think of the utilitarians, who try to analyze the consequences of things and make some rules with respect to ethics on the basis of maximizing the pleasure and minimizing the pain. Or perhaps you know of Kant and the various kinds of deontological ethics that are within his tradition where it's a matter of reason laying down various principles of morality for one's own use and doing so in a way that is consistent and non-contradictory in universalizing those maxims. All of those are interesting approaches to philosophical ethics. This encyclical by John Paul the Great is that kind of document, one concerned with the fundamental questions, but for Catholic theology, it is invariably a matter of the two wings of Catholic thought, the wing of revelation or faith and the wing of reason, usually associated in this dimension with philosophy. So the question is how faith 
and reason are integrated, how there are contributions from revelation, and how there are contributions from reason, especially philosophical reason, as they work together to try to answer some of the great questions of ethics. This is one of the great parts of John Paul II's great program as a pope. There were so many parts of his legacy. He was, after all, so influential with the fall of communism. He was, indeed, deeply involved in the internal renewal of the church with the promulgation of the new code of canon law. He was involved and very, very deeply integrated in the process of producing the catechism of the Catholic Church. He was involved in the effort to bring about the completion of the renewal of each of the rites of the sacraments. He wrote a baker's dozen of encyclicals. This one makes a particular contribution that I think that will be of enormous importance for many, many years to come. It is in the form of an encyclical. An encyclical is a papal document. The tradition of papal documents in this particular form goes back several centuries. It's an encyclical or a letter that is written with a very widespread circulation. Most of the encyclicals, including this one, are designed for the brother bishops of the Pope. And one sees here in Veritatis Splendor that the document is especially addressed to his fellow bishops. But they are intended to have a wider range of readers than that. It is a matter of speaking perhaps to all the clergy, to all the Catholic faithful. Some of them even go so far as to say that they are directed to all people of goodwill. I think that when John Paul II wrote this in collaboration with his team there in the Vatican, I think they were very mindful of the fact that this would have wide reading, including here for the International Catholic University, that many of us would be interested in studying this. But in particular, this encyclical is written to the brother bishops of the Pope. And the reason why he does so is that he is very mindful, as they are, that the duty is upon them to constitute the magisterium, the pope in particular, but the college of bishops as a whole, and each individual bishop, as a bishop, has a special obligation to be a teacher of the faith, not only a teacher of the truths of the faith that we know in the creed, but a teacher of the truths of the faith that pertain to morality, that pertain to Catholic social teaching, that pertain to all sorts of practical aspects of life on which our faith touches. And in this particular case, it is a matter of using the encyclical form, which is the highest level of papal teaching. There are, of course, others like apostolic exhortations and various other kinds of letters that popes produce. But this is to use one of the highest levels of possible papal teaching in order to communicate very seriously the pope's understanding of this matter on fundamental moral theology. As we will see in the course of going through our material, it is Pope John Paul II's conviction that there have been some erroneous trends in the course of recent decades. And so the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor is interested in a very special way in identifying for his fellow bishops some of those erroneous trends and what is at the base of them in contemporary thinking and contemporary culture. Before that, however, he wants this very much to be a matter of seeing the uh, relationship of faith and reason. And so he begins with an, a chapter of great sophistication that deals with the uh, source resources in Revelation. 
He was mindful, I think, of one of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, a document called Optatum Totius, which is on the training and the ministry of priests. And in the course of Optatum Totius, number 16, there was a very strong recommendation made by the Council Fathers that the teaching of fundamental moral theology in seminaries, hopefully in universities, hopefully in every way in which these truths are communicated, that the teaching of fundamental moral theology and the doing of thinking in fundamental moral theology would be much more deeply scriptural, would be much more deeply pervaded by revelation. I think that the Council Fathers were mindful of certain trends within Catholic intellectual life, and in particular, I think that they were worried in a certain number of ways about the uh, tendency of Catholic moral theology to have a, uh, a predominantly rationalist character. That is, they were finding that there was a use of a certain philosophy in a very abstract sense, and that they found that sometimes Catholic moral theology didn't have sufficient depth with regard to how scripture was used, that sometimes there would be individual passages which would be taken from scripture and used as kind of proof texts, isolated from their contexts and in some way removed from what it is where they had naturally found a home within the living resources of, of our revelation that is the word of God. And so what the Second Vatican Council wanted to do was to make sure that there was a thoroughgoing use of revelation, a real dependency upon what Christ has disclosed about morality in the Gospels, because this is a higher and more trustworthy, more valuable source for matters of morality than any particular form of human reasoning could ever be. In the Catholic tradition, it's always a matter of using both wings or using both hands. So what I think that Pope John Paul II wanted to do in Veritatis Splendor was to make a tremendous use of revelation right from the beginning. When we get into the details of Veritatis Splendor, especially in the next lecture, and look at its structure, we'll consider the organization of the first chapter and the way in which Pope John Paul II makes use of the story from the Gospel of Matthew of the rich young man. He finds that it is an incredibly powerful way to ask some of those basic questions that constitute fundamental moral theology, and in his own reflection on it, he makes this his primary source. But then, in the second chapter, he shifts and will be considering some of these problematic areas of moral theology in recent decades. And there he will make sure to use both hands, both wings. He will be interested both in finding within Revelation the answer to some of these questions and the corrective to those erroneous trends, but he will also be interested in laying out what it is within contemporary academic culture that provoked these particular problems and these erroneous trends and be attempting to set it right. And then, in the third chapter, he makes great use of the church's pastoral sensitivity. The fact, as he liked to say in some of his other documents, that the church is an expert in humanity and that it has a duty to inform, to really educate the consciences of the faithful, and to remind people of goodwill throughout the world of some of the principles of morality that are not simply specific to Catholic Catholicism, not simply specific to Christian culture, but are true of all humanity. You see within Veritatis Splendor his great sophistication 
as one who relies upon revelation as a source of genuine knowledge, but also relies upon the use of the best possible kinds of reasoning, sound patterns of logic and argument, careful uses of making distinction for his own work in moral theology. It is the fruitfulness that comes when both wings are served. Let me consider with you for a little while one of the great themes of, of Veritatis Splendor as a whole. It will be absolutely crucial as we go forward that we be uh, attentive to this matter, and it's the theme of human dignity. As a way of entering into that subject, think with me for just a minute about the way in which we have conversations and arguments about something like human rights whether it be in the United Nations or whether it be something on the pages of a newspaper or in any kind of conversation. There are many people concerned with human rights, but we have to ask, of course, what those rights are. That is, what is it a claim that someone is entitled to? Who is it that owes the obligation? What is the basis of that particular claim? What are the limits and extent of the claim as it can be used? But ultimately, when we get down to making an argument about human rights, we have to come and say, well, why is it that anyone has them? It might be that a right is just a civil right and belongs only to citizens. We might also want to say, no, there are things deeper than that, things that pertain to human nature, things that pertain to the basis in a human being's existence that are the source of those rights. We will hope that they will be protected in a given culture by the resources of law, but even if the particular culture or the particular jurisdiction does not protect them by law, we might still want to say that there is a human right. But why? Ultimately, it is because there is a human nature within the person, and that that human nature is something that is common to every single human being, and is something that has a meaning and a value because of what it is. Now, the attempt to argue that philosophically can go a certain distance. We can make a certain progress. We can be compelling in certain ways. But there are other ways, other respects, in which we really need a theological source for this. You will see within the document Veritatis Splendor and other documents by Pope John Paul II, you will see this enormous sophisticated pattern of argumentation suggesting that ultimately we need to think in terms of human dignity. A dignity that comes from human nature precisely because it is something that is so distinctive in all of the cosmos. We are made in the image and likeness of God. While every creature of every kind in the entire cosmos is made by God, and therefore, as the effect of his causality, bears some likeness to God, there is something so distinctive about our kind that we according to the teachings of Genesis, relied upon and emphasized, confirmed by the message of Jesus, we are made in the image and likeness of God. And even if that image, even if that likeness, has been in some way damaged by the fall, subsequently damaged even further in the course of the history of human sinfulness, even if there's been damage to it, nonetheless it retains an importance precisely because of this likeness to God, this structural similarity, that we are very much made in his image and need to be restored to that image in its perfection by Christ and by the church which Christ founded. 
For Pope John Paul II, this notion of human dignity is a way in which to explain that idea that will resound with effect in our contemporary culture. People, in a way, get the notion of dignity, and yet they can be led by thinking about human dignity back to the source, back to the real justification for the claim, which ultimately is a theological justification. So I alert you to this theme about human dignity because I think it pervades this entire encyclical. But I'd also like, here at the start, and before we begin to look at the details, I'd like to talk with you for just a minute about the way in which crucial terms like that are used. It seems to me that we need always to be very careful about trying to understand the meaning that a given word has. It could be, in a given context, that a word will be used with exactly the same meaning, used univocally, in the entire course of a conversation. Fine. Sometimes we use a word, and we use it with entirely different meanings. In philosophy, we call that an equivocal use of terms. To give an example, the word bank. If I were only talking about financial institutions, I could have a good hour-long discussion about many such institutions and use the word bank univocally, only talking about financial institutions. But then suddenly, if I shifted and started talking about the bank on the bank of the river, I'd be using the same word, but I'd be using it as a different term, that is, a word with a new and distinct meaning, a word that's a meaning that's utterly unrelated to the financial institution. It simply means the side of a river. I could even, if you wanted to be cute, talk about the plane, banking over the bank on the bank. I can get three meanings and even more. As long as I'm clear on the meaning of terms, I can use them without confusing anybody. But in addition to purely equivocal meanings, entirely different, unrelated, and in addition to univocal uses, where it's exactly the same, I can also use words analogically. That is, I can use the same word in different meanings, but the meanings aren't totally unrelated. The meanings are related, but they're not exactly the same. There's an important difference. I bring this up. Let me state with the word bank just to use my example. Supposing I bank on the skill of the pilot banking his plane over the bank on the riverbank. I'm using the term, I bank on the skill of the pilot, in that I trust the pilot's skill, like I trust the financial institution. And there's a way in which there's an analogy there because of the trust, even though the nature of the trust is very different. Trusting in the financial institution is one thing, trusting in the skill of the pilot is another. I can use it analogically. I bring this up because I think the word dignity, as used in papal documents, as used in general discussion when we're talking about human dignity as the source of human rights, I personally think that the word should be understood analogically and not univocally. That is, I think it has different meanings, meanings that are related, but not entirely the same. And I think that that's going to be crucial to this particular understanding that we are attempting to come to of the document Veritatis Splendor. Many times within Veritatis Splendor, at the very heart of this document, is a strong sense of human dignity as something that absolutely everyone has, a dignity that comes simply by virtue of having a human nature. And so from the moment of conception until the moment of death, as long as we have existence on this earth, 
There is a dignity simply because of the nature that we have. It's something that pertains to the unborn and pertains to the aged. It pertains to those who are healthy and well and working and functioning. It pertains to those who are sick, those who are impaired, those who are in some way compromised. It pertains to the innocent and to the guilty. And so that we say, and we're thinking, for instance, about imprisonment or any part of the penal system, we expect that the person, even if they, that person is a criminal, if they've been convicted by a jury of peers with a reasonable way, with sufficient evidence, even the person who is guilty is still entitled to being treated with human dignity. And there are things that we think one ought not to do to a prisoner. Likewise, we insist that even if a person is not functioning well because they've been cognitively impaired, if they are seriously ill, if they've been paralyzed, nonetheless, we hold that there is an absolute and crucial need to treat them with dignity. So the first sense of dignity that I'm adverting to and that I think is prominent in this document is a sense of dignity in which what we're focusing on is the way in which we must respect any human being from the moment of conception until the moment of death throughout the entirety of the course on earth, we must regard them with a certain dignity and treat them in a certain way. But I think that there's a second meaning of human dignity, and it comes out in the pages of Veritatis Splendor. I'll be sure to try to point it out when we get to that passage. But I'd like you to be alert to it right at the start here because of its enormous importance for Pope John Paul II, namely, there is a dignity that is a moral dignity. It comes from acting in a way that is in accord with our the moral demands on us, the moral demands on us placed by the will of God, whether it be formally by God's law in the Ten Commandments, or whether it be by the natural law, the way in which God has made us of a certain nature and put within us the norms of morality there for us to discover. If one is acting in accord with the natural law, if one is acting in accord with the Decalogue, with the divine law, one retains one's moral dignity because one is doing God's will. But if one consciously and deliberately, if one knowingly acts against God's will, whether acting against the Decalogue, for instance, by refusing to honor parents, by refusing to worship God, by committing adultery, by committing murder, one loses one's moral dignity. Likewise, if one offended against the natural law, the law which we will speak about in greater detail, which is the, the rule of morality that is already built within us by God and is there for us to discover. But if one were deliberately to act against the natural law, one would lose one's moral dignity. Now, I bring this up, I think you can see, for obvious reasons. If one focuses in on basic human dignity and doesn't mention the fact that there is a moral dignity, one could get the impression that morality doesn't have any particular relevance to the question of human dignity. Instead, by making the distinction between one's basic human dignity and one's moral dignity, we can rightly say, and I think Pope John Paul does in this document, everybody, even the guilty, always retain their basic human dignity and must always be treated in accord with that. On the other hand, if one has acted in a way that is directly contrary to the divine law or directly contrary to the norms of the natural moral law, one can lose one's moral dignity. This is going to be an incredibly important part of the argumentation that Pope John Paul II uses. 
at various places in this document, just as he will use it in very important parts of his Catholic social teaching encyclicals, a, an area of morality on which he has made an incredibly important set of contributions to what had been begun in the modern period by people like Pope Leo XIII and others who started to use the encyclical format in order to think through the questions about how Catholic the Catholic Church thinks that society, economics, politics, and family life ought to be organized. He makes use of this. It's a theme of great importance. Let me turn to one other topic of a general nature here in this first lecture when we're trying to get the lay of the land and to appreciate what Veritatis Splendor is giving to us that is of great significance. And it's the theme of faith and reason. I've already adverted to it a few minutes ago by suggesting that Catholic moral theology, like all forms of Catholic theology, have a debt to faith and a debt to reason. I think that this is very well balanced within the Catholic intellectual tradition. In some other traditions, it is not respected or not understood in quite the same way. There are religious traditions which want to say anything of importance has to be revealed. Sometimes they think that the human mind has been compromised by the fall and that we are no longer able to figure these things out sufficiently well on our own. Or perhaps we think that what we're looking at, even our human nature, has been severely compromised. And hence, there's nothing there sufficient to look at, nothing from which we can draw anything that is normative. The Catholic tradition wants to hold for both, namely that there is incredibly important knowledge that we gain from revelation, and some of it we get from revelation uniquely. If there were not revelation, we would not receive this. But we also hold that there are important things that we can get from our reason looking at our nature, things sometimes that are not revealed but yet are able for us to understand, sometimes simply a way of making an argument to those in the culture who do not share our religious convictions. I find myself frequently enough, whether it be talking to the sophomores or whether it be talking to the newspapers or the television folks, sometimes I find myself, although I hold as my deepest reason for my particular convictions on morality, I probably have as the deepest convictions that it has been revealed by God that it has been shown to us by Jesus and told to us in the course of the various passages we have from him in the gospel. And yet, if my audience, if those with whom I'm talking, are not of the household of the faith, what I, especially as a philosopher, need to do is to give them a sound argument, as sound a one as I can manage, on the basis of reason, on the basis of what suppositions we share. As you can well imagine, there really is no argumentation unless we share something at very least a commitment to the principle of non-contradiction, a commitment to the principle of uh, causality or the principle of sufficient reason. And if we don't share those principles of reason, we would have a hard time communicating in a way that was really cogent and really forceful. Hence, what I find is that in Catholic moral theology, as in most parts of Catholic theology in general, there is this strong sense of a commitment to both faith and reason. One will see that here in this document in some important ways. I'd like to stress here, without going into it in great detail, the way in which Veritatis Splendor will make use of the idea of natural law theory. Natural law theory is a part of moral thinking which already was begun in the Greeks. One can think of Sophocles, for instance, in his great plays, 
Aristotle makes occasional reference to it, Cicero even more so. Uh, both Greek and Roman antiquity had a number of thinkers. The Stoics, in a certain way, were natural law thinkers. This came to a, a real head for Christianity in the 13th century with Thomas Aquinas. And there, with the recovery of the texts of Aristotle that had occurred in the two generations prior to his own time, and his own great sense and love, as many in his day possessed, for the scriptures and for what Revelation gave us, he found himself in a position where he could unite these themes, the Aristotelian sense of nature and the prospects of finding moral guidance there, with the great Revelation theme about creation and the way in which God made each kind. I would propose it to you here at the end of this lecture just to think for a minute about the way in which we can think about the different species in the natural world, but we can also think about them as the different kinds of creature. Creation and nature come together for the Christian because we believe that God is the source of all nature and of all the kinds of nature. In doing so, we will use that theme from philosophical reason, the theme of natural law, and yet we'll do it and use it in a way that is very much in accord, very much in concert with the revealed tradition. Places like St. Paul's first letter to, the Roman, uh, letter to the Romans in its first and second chapters, when Paul himself uses the language of the law, thinking of the Decalogue, but also the law that was already present to people before the law, the Decalogue, was given, and that remains within our hearts as a source of moral knowledge. Throughout this encyclical, John Paul the Great will be making use of philosophical themes and of themes from Revelation. He'll be making use of faith and of reason, because both can be genuine sources of knowledge, and if handled with dexterity, if handled with a certain great um, concern to be accurate, an effort especially to try to see the connections and to let one help to illumine the other. They both provide enormous sources of knowledge and wisdom of great importance in the moral life. These will be some of our themes as we continue and go forward in our study of Veritatis Splendor. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.